This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're finishing up chapter 25. In today's passage, Jesus reveals more about the final judgment, and he offers stark contrast throughout. This judgment will not be one of degrees. There will be those who are declared righteous because they have put their trust in Jesus for their salvation, and there will be those who will be declared accursed because they assumed they could earn their way to heaven or be saved by association with the church or other believers. This message should be a wake-up call for everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. We all want to be ready for Christ's return, and he could come at any day. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's read Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed once, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I want to show you a couple of things. First one is two contrasting revelations. As we look at a picture of genuine faith here, there are two contrasting revelation verses 31 through 33 jesus does what he does here is is he announcing his first edict as the king of the universe who will reign from the earth now he is already the king of kings he's already the king of the universe but the headquarters of his reign is not yet here on the earth now he will reveal the nature of the faith of the survivors of the tribulation. When the people who will survive all of those calamities will have to face Jesus. And we're told here in the passage that his throne is on the earth here. And I want you to know that the presence of his glorious throne in the scene does not describe a promotion. In case you're thinking, wow, Jesus was promoted to king. No, 
He already has all of the authority. Remember, he told the disciples right after his resurrection, all authority has been given to me. So the presence of his throne here on the earth doesn't mean he was promoted. It means simply a transfer of the headquarters of his rule to this realm. And that is going to take place during the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium, which happens right after his return. So this prophecy, therefore, should comfort all of us because... From our perspective, it may seem like the world is out of control. And yes, if we look at our own limitations, our own inability to even control events in our own life, yes, we do not have control of the universe or, or anything, really. We don't even control when we take our next breath. But that's from our perspective. And because of that limitation, from time to time, it may feel like life is a long succession of crises. And, and from time to time, we go through those seasons where you look at your life and say, Lord, when is this going to end? But the King of Kings who rules in the hearts of people will establish, like I said, an everlasting theocracy here on earth, displacing forever the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, verse 2. And who is that, church? It's Satan. He, he, he wants you to think he has control of the world, but that's not true. His, his dominion is totally controlled by God. But I want you to see another detail of this scene here. The angels who will accompany Christ on that day. Now, this is exactly what John later saw in the Isle of Patmos. Listen to Revelation 19, verses 14 through 15, the glory of this scene. And the armies which are in heaven, he says, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So he, John sees exactly that moment when Jesus Christ comes from heaven to establish his kingdom here on the earth, and he comes slaughtering his enemies. It's not really a battle here, more like a, like a massacre. Daniel had a similar vision in Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Now, why am I showing you all of this? To show you that the Bible is perfectly harmonious. There is nothing in the Bible that contradicts anything else from the Bible. Even though sometimes when we read it, we may have the impression, well, was this text contradicting that other text? No. When we look at it with the context, we understand that there's a perfect harmony here because even though there are several human authors of the Bible, there's only one divine author, God himself. So what we're told here is that on that day, there will be the nations before him. Every ethnicity that will still be alive during that day will have to answer to God. Now, I want you to know that the judgment of the nations here, this portion of the Olivet Discourse, is not a parable, even though it has parabolic elements. For example, the sheep and the goats, very clearly, symbolize people because they will say to God. They will say something. They will utter words to God. And sheep and goats don't utter words. And on that day, the Lord will judge the living and divide the survivors of the end time tribulation into two groups. Okay, so again, another peculiar characteristic of this judgment here is that this is a judgment of the living. Remember, the great white throne judgment, which we looked at when we studied the book of Revelation, will be a judging of the dead. The dead will be resurrected and stand trial before God. 
Now, this is different. The living will be judged. In uh, the first group, so there are two groups. One will stand on the right. The other one will stand on the left here. The first group will consist of Gentile believers whom Jesus calls the blessed of my father who will care for Jewish believers at the time, those who Jesus calls these brothers of mine, okay? And the reason we're making that distinction is because God has a plan for the Jewish nation that he will fulfill no matter what. And we see that develop here in the Olivet Discourse. But during the calamities of this time, you remember, there will be 144,000 Jews 12,000 from each tribe who will be specifically tasked with proclaiming the gospel. They will receive Christ during that time. They will realize we missed the Messiah. They will preach the gospel around the world. The 144,000 plus some other Gentile believers too will be persecuted for their faith. And, and they will need caring for it. And fellow believers will care for them. And what Jesus is saying here, prophesying this judgment of the nations, is that the genuineness of people's faith will be manifested by the way they care for one another during that time. The goats here represent false believers. In case you haven't noticed, it's pretty easy to determine because they're called accursed ones. They're sent to hell. They call Jesus Lord. So there's a, there's a false profession. There, there's an, an apparent devotion to Christ, but it's only outwardly. It's not, there's, there's no real salvation in them. They are living alongside real sheep. It happens now. It will continue to happen at the end of the times there until the all-knowing shepherd comes and identifies them and reveals their true nature. Now, there's another detail here that I want to point out to you. The references here to left and right have nothing to do with politics. In biblical imagery, standing on somebody's right here communicates authority. It communicates trust, honor, and blessing. And we know that from several examples here. For example, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, we're told. Acts 2, verse 23. There's Hebrews 8, verse 1. The patriarchs in the book of Genesis would always bless their sons, placing their right hand uh, on them, there, there's that idea of honor and, and, and blessing and authority. Now, that is why this imagery is here, that Jesus says, these are the folks that are going to receive authority. These are the blessed of my Father. They're at my right hand. These are the people who will inherit the kingdom. They will get authority. They will reign with me. Now, these other folks here have a different destiny. But that's why I'm saying this is two contrasting revelations because Christ himself will reveal what's in their hearts because he's the only one who can do that. See, we make a mistake when we say, I don't think that person is a true believer. We can only speculate. We don't know that fact. We can examine the fruit, obviously, and we can say that is not a fruit of a true believer, but it is not our job to say, well, you're a goat, you're a sheep. So the co-mingling here between true and false believers will end at this time because Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, no one righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. So obviously then Jesus Christ will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And again, that righteousness is not inherent. It's not natural. You and I don't have natural righteousness. We have to be given the righteousness of Christ. And that happens when we become believers in Christ. The people who try to earn their salvation will always be called unrighteous in the eyes of God because Jesus said, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not make it to the kingdom. And what is that exceeding righteousness? It's salvation by grace through faith, not salvation by good works, not salvation by, by being good or by doing things or observing a set of man-made laws. No. So 
no unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. We see clearly the picture of that here. And Jesus will ensure, therefore, that the first generation of non-resurrected kingdom subjects includes only redeemed people. Now, let me explain this a little bit. The subjects of the kingdom of heaven, the millennial kingdom, will be living people, the sheep that will have been separated by Jesus and say, well, come and inherit the kingdom. These are people who will never experience death. Now, you and I will experience death or will experience the transformation of our bodies either by the rapture, if that happens before our death, or by natural death. We'll be in heaven, but we will be resurrected and be brought back to the earth so our feet are going to walk the earth again during the millennium. We will, we will be considered resurrected, glorified church-age saints. Now, now, if you're not a believer in Christ, it may be that you will miss the rapture. You will live through the tribulation. Very unlikely, a lot of people will die. And at that time, you will experience this judgment. I don't recommend that. I recommend you come to Christ now. Don't wait and see what happens. But here's a second aspect I want to show you of genuine faith, Christ-exalting faith. We talked about two contrasting revelations. There are two opposing manifestations, verses 34 through 40. The flock of sheep that Jesus will send to his right here will manifest the legitimacy of their faith by how they care for one another during the time of the increasing birth pains. Remember that illustration that Jesus used in Matthew 24, verse 8? During that period of time, the sheep will manifest their true saving fit, the fruit of their salvation by caring for one another. And they will be admitted into the kingdom because of their saving faith. Now, notice here that the sheep demonstrate surprise when they hear all of the details from Christ. They say, when did we do that, Jesus? And then they hear that Jesus will consider their care for one another as a personal act of kindness to him. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, because you took care of the people I love, it's as if you were doing it to me. Now, by the way, before we even go any further, we understand that concept. If you're kind to my daughter, you're being kind to me. Consequently, if you lack kindness with my daughter, then you have a personal problem with me. We understand that concept. So Jesus is saying here that your personal act of kindness to the people I love, to the people for whom I prepared the kingdom before the foundation of the world is a personal act of kindness to me. I take that personally. And interestingly here, their lack of awareness proves that their compassion will be the natural flow of their salvation, not a desire to earn anything from God. You see, They just do it because that's what you do when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of planning involved. You just, somebody's in need, you meet that need. Somebody needs an encouragement from you, you encourage that person. And that is what they're manifesting here. It's a natural flow of their saving faith and sanctifying grace. This is the exact opposite that the hypocrites that Jesus confronts all throughout the book of Matthew here do. They were selective in the way they did their acts of kindness. And they were selective in a sense that they wanted people to see it. So they would, they would plan their act of kindness around, well, how is this going to generate more PR for us? And we know the principle then here, churches, is brotherly love proves genuine faith. It doesn't earn genuine faith, but it proves your faith. Now, John, one of the original listeners of these words here in the Olivet Discourse, learned this lesson very well, so much so that later, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote this in 1 John 2, verses 9 through 10. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. 
The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now, this is profound, church. You cannot say you love Christ if you hate your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ. But you can't say, I don't hate him, pastor or her. I just don't want anything to do with him or her. Wrong answer. Because you're going to spend eternity with those people. That is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, before you even come to worship me, go and make things right with your brother and sister. I don't want your worship unless you be reconciled with your brother or sister in Christ. Now, obviously, not everything depends on you, but initiating the, the reconciliation does depend on you. Now, some time ago, I saw an interview from the head stewardess of Air Force One. She said there was no higher honor than to serve the president of the United States. She was wrong. There is a higher honor, and that is to serve the king of the universe, and that tops everything. And you and I have received that indescribable honor to serve the king of kings by serving the people he loves. So what you do is clothe people, feed them, visit, encourage your fellow believer in Christ, and do it because you are the sheep of the good shepherd and the blessed of his father and a righteous one. Now, the ghosts will receive condemnation because they will have manifested their unbelief by failing to care for the tribulation saints and even persecuting them. So let's go to number three here, and then we'll, we'll move fast here, okay? Two antithetical positions, verses 41 through 45. Jesus calls the sheep righteous, but the goats are accursed. That's their title. That's their position before Christ, and that is terrifying. One group is the righteous. The other one is the accursed ones. They will spend eternity in a place that God did not prepare for them. I hope you didn't miss that. In verse 41 here, he says, I have prepared hell for the devil and his angels. So these people are going to go to a place that God had not originally prepared for them. That's mind-boggling. But because they have rebelled against him in the same prideful manner as the devil, then their only destination is they will join Satan and his angels and his demons in everlasting punishment. Now, this passage here, therefore, is another reason why we must care for, provide for, pray for, love, and take the gospel to the Jewish people. Because they're beloved, they're the brothers of Christ here, along with whoever does the will of the Father. But if the designation here in verse 45 of the least of these is still a little confusing for you, let me just say that this designation is purposefully broad to include other believers as well, not just the Jewish people. And we know that Jesus used the expression little ones as a term of endearment for his people in other passages. For example, Matthew 10 verse 42, he says, Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones... Even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And I think that Jesus uses this broad description here because he doesn't want us to limit compassion to specific ethnic groups or even people who are in the faith as well. Jesus modeled universal compassion. For example, he showed kindness to a Roman centurion. He demonstrated grace to a Samaritan adulteress and healed the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. He ate with Judas, the one who would betray him, and restored Peter, the one who denied him. He called tax collectors to the ministry, and he touched the ceremonially unclean, and he redeemed the sexually immoral. Why? Because he's a friend of sinners, and we should be the same. We should imitate him. And furthermore, he commanded us to love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So if we are called upon to love people who consider us their enemies, what does that say about how we are to treat one another? 
Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him a food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So again, if the Bible demands that we treat our enemies, people who consider us their enemies, with that level of dignity and love and care, should we treat one another here in a different way? So if you're still having trouble identifying the least of these, here's what you do, okay? Just be indiscriminate in your kindness and compassion. Just grant kindness and compassion to everyone you meet. Meet people's needs regardless of whether or not they are believers or whether or not they are like you or whether or not they will return the favor or they are able to return to generosity. Just, just give that compassionate heart, that kindness because you love Jesus Christ. Now, while God expects us and Jesus models how to do good to people, to all people, fellow believers should be the specific recipients of our kindness. Paul confirms this when he says to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 10, So then while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So in general, just be good to everyone. Be kind, be compassionate to everyone. doesn't mean celebrating their sin. It doesn't mean agreeing with them. It doesn't mean not confronting them firmly when you have to. But be loving to all of them. But put your priority in people with whom you fellowship, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Treating a fellow believer with anything less than Christ-like love is incompatible with saving faith. That's what we're learning here. Unfortunately... We fail at this many times. We offend, we insult, we neglect, we betray, and we fail to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ like we should. Well, let me finish here with the two polarized destinations. Verse 46, the very last verse of the Olivet Discourse. There are two contrasting revelations, two opposing manifestations, two antithetical positions, and now two polarized destinations. Jesus is very clear. These will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Church, how many options are there here? There are not four. This is a binary system. There's only two options. Either people will go to hell or they will go to heaven. They're a polar opposite. And by the way, these are real locations. They're not a state of mind. This is not a metaphor for goodness or evil. They're real places. People are there now in these places. The two destinations are determined by whether or not people are in Christ or in Adam, to use a language that Paul uses. People are either saved or unsaved. They are blessed or accursed. They are sheep or goat. They're either declared righteous or pronounced accursed or guilty. And they will either experience everlasting punishment or eternal life. And no one can opt out of this binary system. Whether or not you believe in God, you will have to face Him. That's the reality. People who claim to not believe in God, that doesn't change anything other than mask their lifestyle only temporarily. And, and being in, in Christ have nothing to do, like we just learned, with how much you perform or your perceived goodness or religiosity, but whether or not you have trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then if you have, then genuine faith will show in your heart and in your actions sooner or later, because that's the fruit of genuine faith. So... Today we learn how Jesus will assess the legitimacy of people's salvation on that day. But this gives us tremendous insight of the heart of Christ for his own people. And the comfort then for us is this. Let's think twice before we lash out on our brother or sister in Christ. Let's think twice before we even start to crank the rumor mill about someone. 
Let's make sure we're not doing something unkind, whether in words or in action, to someone whom Jesus loves. Now, here's your homework for this week. Choose a fellow believer, whether that person comes to this church or not, but choose a fellow believer, preferably someone you're not close to, or maybe someone who has caused you grief in the past, and reach out and shower that person with kindness, even though you may not receive it back. How about that? Because you will receive it back from Jesus Christ himself, which is far greater than anyone can ever reward you with. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. And there's so much more to say, Lord, from from, uh, the words of Christ here, Lord. But, Father, in the limited time we have, we want to make the best and and maximize our time here learning your word. And thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. We do pray for all of us here. Maybe there are people here who are bitter, angry. Maybe we are withholding forgiveness. Lord, I pray that this will not be the case this morning, Father, that we'll all be encouraged to honor you, Lord, knowing that when we honor you, we receive the reward from you, and that's better than anybody can ever give to us. So we thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that you will continue to transform us into Christ-likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. And I'll remind you that we have several books available now, all based on Pastor's Sermon Series. Revelation, Unveiling God's Plan for Humanity, Ruth and the Kindness of God, and Pastor's latest book, Kingdom Parables, 12 Signposts to Guide You Through Turbulent Times are great resources and excellent gifts for those you love. Visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, to get your copies today. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with grace.